I think from a, from a business perspective, I think there's one thing that in the movie that was, you know, wildly inaccurate was this idea that, you know, we were trying to lose people money. Like, okay, first we're gonna sell them a big stock, then we'll sell them dog shit. No, that was that was never the idea. The idea was like, you know, you'd sell them, you know, big stocks first and then sell them speculative stocks, VC stocks, and then hopefully make the money. I'd already been in business before that and I, I went bankrupt. I made a lot of mistakes in my first business, which was not in Wall Street, which is in, in the meat and seafood business. So I'd learned a lot about business by by screwing up a business. So, yep. you know, one thing about, about not just crypto, about all things in life is my, my views on these things continue to evolve over time based on new information, right? So, you know, sell me this pen, you know, how do you sell someone a pen or a car or, or, or an insurance policy or a stock unless you know what their needs are, what their pain points are, what their goals are? So- Hi, my name is Jason Rasnick, the CEO of Benzinga, and welcome to the Raz Report. As always, before we kick things off, I want to quickly tell you about what Benzinga is. Before I started Benzinga in 2010, there were very few places to get real-time information on financial markets. I thought it was unfair that Wall Street had access to this information before the average Joe investor. So I created Benzinga to level the playing field for you, the retail investor. Benzinga is for the people and by the people. Now, let's dive into the show. All right. Excited to have FinTech Power Hour, powerhouse himself, Jordan Belfort, for half an hour to ask questions, learn what he's doing in crypto, and just all the things. Hopefully, I'll ask him different things that someone else, you know, hasn't asked since you see Jordan a lot, and he's pretty well-followed and pretty famous. So, Jordan, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Yeah, so I want to first start off with, I'm just going to go to one of my favorite movies, Wolf of Wall Street. What was one thing the movie got wrong about your life? Um, I think from, from, a, from a business perspective, I think there's one thing that in the movie that was, you know, wildly inaccurate was this idea that, you know, we were trying to lose people money. I mean, like, it's kind of like preposterous. Like, you would never try to lose a client money or like, okay, first we're going to sell them a big stock, then we'll sell them dog shit. No, that was, that was never the idea. The idea was like, you know, you'd sell them, you know, big stocks first and then sell them speculative stocks, VC stocks, and then hopefully make the money. For example, like on a, on a Steve Madden shoes, which worked really well. Um, we made more money on that deal than every other deal combined. So you make a lot, the firm itself, the brokers all make a heck of a lot more money when you make your clients money. And when you lose your clients money, you have to find new clients. So the idea that that was the intent is, is preposterous. I, I understand why Scorsese did it because it, it's, it's easy to understand that he was saying there's a fraud going on. There's something wrong. And that was the easiest way to explain that there's something wrong happening. Well, in reality, the, what was wrong was very esoteric and on, you know, stock manipulation, front running, things that are not very exciting to watch on the silver screen. So I understood his motivations. It's fine. But that was, you know, kind of just wildly inaccurate. You would never um, try to do that as a broker. And I, and I think that, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of stock brokers per se, but they don't actively want to lose you money. They just it's just very difficult to make people money by trading. Yeah, so what you guys needed to find was new deal flow to go after that you can sell that deal flow. And the hard part was finding those new good companies or tellies of the world, right? Is that and, – and so – okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then so what was one thing that gets right about your life? 
the movie. Uh, um, well, I mean, the, 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 the wildness, the, the drug addiction, the, uh, the camaraderie, the, how fun it was, because it was fun. There's no denying. It was a different time, uh, you know, different rules of engagement back in the 90s and the, in the late 80s than there are today. And we didn't have all... We're all stuck with this little terrible thing called the smartphone that everything you do gets videoed. <laughs> so the world was a safer place back then. So uh, it was really fun. And and we had a, a brilliant time. You know, you, you it was like you they used to call broker Disneyland. I think they captured that really, really well. Yeah. I mean, these phones are great for some things, but they've ruined a lot. They've <laughs> uh, ruined absolutely. a lot. Absolutely. Yeah, Instagram, yeah. it's ruined a lot. Like, it's just, you know, there's a lot of yeah. stuff. It's, it's ruined. Um, like, who was the cop that would call you and, and uh what's his name the guy in the new york he used to be the you know bo deedle bo deedle i sat in right when the movie came out i was in miami we had dinner right next to him it was like the first week the movie came out so people didn't really know him but i just i saw the movie the day it came out in the right. theater it was pretty funny he was pretty excited to be in there was that <laughs> did he play himself was that was he involved yeah in the whole yes thing? yeah okay. yeah absolutely yeah he was my so I had my head of security and uh okay. i had bodyguards at my house and uh he you know was organizing all that and uh yeah his scenes are very accurate by the way very okay, accurate they, okay they are okay and then um the other thing i was gonna say you you in the movie they had you come into some like place and then you got on the phone and you just sold so these guys were like wowed at you like how amazing of a sales guy you were in the movie in the beginning you went into that sure. one place was yeah. that just uh hollywood that, that's probably that's probably the scene that's probably one of the most accurate scenes in the movie really? that was literally identical almost identical to Holy what happened cow. yeah yeah Okay, yeah. I, I always wondered that. And then my other scene was when you went into that summer party house, and there was a girl there that was someone else's girlfriend, and then that's who you, I think you married. Was that, that was that was also just literally dead on balls accurate. That was my house. That I was throwing wow. the party, and uh, and this girl walked in. It was gorgeous, and uh, and yeah, with a guy, and I uh, I snatched her in my younger days, my younger and, and, and bolder and wilder days. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, now. Um, we're going to keep a couple more questions on the movie. So, I mean, you get to say Leonardo DiCaprio played you in a movie, which is crazy. And he, and he got robbed. How he didn't win the Oscar is it's abominable. Man, I know, I know, you know, I know. But for the act, I mean, it's abominable. I, I, I still, it's one of the things, I, I don't, I know, whatever, who gives an award, but I, you should have won that. Well, I mean, I think that on some level, you know, the Oscars are not just about who is the most talented or best executing actor. It's also, you know, what's the social message of the movie? And wow. some messages are inherently more popular than others. And um, and, I, and I think that, you know, there was this sort of the, the, the nature of the subject matter made it uh, an uphill battle. So, you know, and like, for example, I think that, and that ironically, the, you know, who won the Oscar, it was Matthew McConaughey, who was also incredibly brilliant in the Wolf of Wall Street. He won it for das, da, Dallas, uh, Dallas. Come on, Oscar, come on. Dallas. You said, you, you said Matthew McConaughey, you got to do this now. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, right, right, right. Oh, exactly. Oh, I said, no, no, he won oh. for Dallas Buyers Club, right? Yeah. There's a great, and there's Perfect. a great, there's a great um website or uh, on, I think on YouTube called, um, what is it? They make fun of. They do tra funny trailers for movies, right? And they um, like they make fun of movies through tr by having mock trailers. And and one of the, if you look at the trailer for the what's it, I forgot what it's called. But anyway, the trailer they make for the Wolf of Wall Street, like starring you know Leonardo DiCaprio. They make fun of Leo. They, they starring and they show Matthew Mah McConaughey and they and they um, refer to him as from Dallas Oscar Steelers Club. And watch as the guy who stole Best Actor stops by to pound his chest right in Leo's fucking face. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's true. And by the way, 
if you think about what scene, like Matthew Connor is obviously very famous, but that scene of the part of the movie, amazing, yeah, it's it's played everywhere. I was just yeah. at um, a sporting event. Oh, the Lions, Kansas City in uh, Thursday Night Football. They play that thing so many times, and it's like that's your movie. I mean, you should get royalty every time they play it. I, okay. I should. <laughs> What's one thing? Last, uh, if you could go back and change one thing about the movie, about the movie, what would it be? Or nothing. Um. Well, there's one scene in the end where um, I punched my wife in the stomach, which was which is pure fiction. That never happened. I never hit my wife like that. And I guess, you know, it didn't bother me in the sense that because, you know, I knew it wasn't true. My children knew that it wasn't true. And they also asked me for permission to do it. You know, they didn't just do that and then surprise me. Leo called me and says, hey, listen, Marty wants me to do this and I just want to make sure that it's okay with you. We think it's going to make the scene more dramatic. And I'm like, yeah, just do whatever you want to make the best movie possible. So, like, you know, because, again, you know, it's it's a movie and it's not like a, it's not a documentary, right? Yep. And and I think people, you know, know there's some poetic license taken with some of that stuff. So, but I mean, that, that actually, you know, when, when that, you know, Every time I watch that, kind of, you know, it's sort of like I don't like seeing like that sort of, you know, action taken by my character. But like, you know, I know it's not true. And, I, you know, and I think most people that really anyone that that, that cares that I care about that, you know, knows me as a friend or a, or a loved one knows it's not true. But I guess I'd like to see that changed. What about the helicopter scene? Was that any truth? That's accurate. That Hundred percent. That's accurate. Yeah. Oh my god! How about the fun, one of the funniest scenes? This is my last one. The one of the, oh, the Lamborghini. <laughs> that is unbelievable. That's one hundred percent true. The only the only thing that's not true is it wasn't a Lamborghini. It was a Mercedes. Everything else is one hundred percent true. What kind of Mercedes? It was a. It was a back then. It was a five hundred convertible. So like convertible. that was the yeah yeah. It was like you know white five hundred convertible. Yeah. But how about going up the stairs? That was all accurate. One hundred percent true. Oh, that I cried when that happened. I cried. <laughs> no. Uh, wait, no, my the student I was gonna say that was funny. Uh, the webcam. Um, when you're true. what? True. Really? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yes. Okay. All right, all right, all right. Uh, th- look, at, look how famous Margot Robbie became from that movie, right? Oh my God, Margot. Did you ever talk to her? Yeah, she's amazing, Margot. She's a, and by the way, she's the sweetest person ever. Yeah, I do speak to Margot uh, occasionally, and uh, when I run into her, it's always a great thing. And uh, she's amazing. Yeah, she's doing amazing. I, well, um, how about Leonardo? Do you ever talk to? Yeah, him? of course. Yeah. Oh yeah, really? I spoke to him, yeah, recently. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. Um, all right. So now we're going to go to your life. Let's talk about, you know, well, I guess this is real life mixed with, you know, so, um, you started your Wall Street firm when you were just like 27 years old, right? 25, 25. So yeah. how did you get started? Like you were working somewhere else and you're like, okay, I can do this better. Like, how did you first put the first shingle up? Um, so I already been in business before that. And I, I went bankrupt. I made a lot of mistakes in my first business, which was not in Wall Street, which is in, in the meat and seafood business. So I learned a lot about business by by screwing up a business. So yep. and I, I always had that sort of entrepreneur's mentality since I was very young. Always was you know trying you know to execute on ideas. And then ultimately, um, after the market crashed, and I and I went to that small firm, the penny stock firm, um, and. You know, I was so much of a, a more accomplished, better salesperson than everyone else. And I was approached by uh, the manager. He says, hey, let's open up our own place and blah, blah, blah. And, and at first I was very reluctant because, you know, yep. I just 
did in a disastrous business before and then. But ultimately, I, I, I started to investigate it. And, and um, when I went into meetings with lawyers and, and people in the industry, uh, you know, I, I think I was very impressive at that age because I had a lot of business experience and I was well-spoken and, 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 and I had support from people in the industry saying, if you want to do this, we'll get behind you. Um, and ultimately, I took a, a – I think it was probably the most logical path to get in was I started off as a franchised operation. Like I was, it was called an Office of Supervisory Jurisdiction, OSJ, from another firm, a small, very small firm. So that allowed me to sort of leapfrog into the business without having to do all the back office stuff from scratch, get licensed with the – uh, NESD from like, I, 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 I was able to sort of get in under the umbrella of a very small firm, but then very quickly from there, and and I, and I also got very lucky with attracting uh, some incredible talent. Uh, one man in particular, a guy who was a an old Wall Street uh, war dog type, who was a a, uh, a clearing expert in back office operations, a guy named Mike Valinotti. So Mike really built the entire back office operations for me. Uh, I had some mentors along the way on the investment banking side, not very good ones, which ended up ultimately biting me in the bucks. I learned some things and, and, and I probably could have gone a much different way. I've had some early stage mentors in the investment banking side that were more legit. Um, but the sales side, that, that I, they came naturally to me. So really those were the, the different aspects. My dad, who was a CFO, uh, came in to run the money side of things. So I, I just was very lucky. I had great people surrounding me that knew the aspects of the business that I didn't know myself. So, um, and that was how I did it. Yeah, those investment bankers or the guys you said that weren't the right guys. Do you think back then you just thought everyone was great and some of these guys were didn't have the best interests aligned or something? Like, was it like you, you have a sixth sense for sales and a lot of things, but do you think like maybe you misjudged some people when you first met them or something? Um, it's not that I misjudged them. I think I correctly judged them, but I had um, my my barometer of what is good and bad was probably a bit off at that point. As a as a young guy, wanted to make money quickly, um, and you know they were honest in the sense that they were honest with me, most of them, um, but they were doing things in a way that were somewhat dishonest. Now that being said. Wall Street's a fucked up place. I mean, like, you know, if you go to, you know, there's no greater, you know, a criminal enterprise than Goldman Sachs. I mean, fr frankly speaking, there's no great crime out there that they're not behind. Now, they also do a lot of good things as well. And I think that, you know, when you get that big and you're, you know, part of the, the establishment, you get away with murder, basically. And, I, and, we, and we saw that happen in grand form in 2008, where you suddenly, and I was saying it all along, and I wasn't the only one saying it, but then you watched how they basically sold out the entire country, but, you know, to make a profit with the, you know, instituting, yep. you know, policies and, and, and loopholes and, 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 and things that allowed, the financial crisis to come about and with mortgages yeah. and, and whatnot. So it wasn't just that, you know, I was doing things wrong. Wall Street is, is a very corrupt place. It really is. Uh, it's a necessary place that does good things as well. Um, and I think that's why there's so much anger and, you know, moving on to crypto. I think one of the reasons why people were looking to embrace crypto is like, oh, it's going to be better without Wall Street, without, you know, Wall Street's so corrupt and all turned out, you know, Crypto was even more corrupt than Wall Street, um, at least most of it, right? So, yep. um, so yep. you know, I think the, 100%. the, the, com the common denominator is human beings are involved. So, I I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, by the way, you don't know, I was the chair of the UCC, uh, you know, whatever credit committee for Voyager from the bankruptcy. I was one of the larger creditors 
didn't turn out as bad as it could have, but it turned out very, very bad. And I just invest in USDC. And what it was is people are just putting money in and then they were lending the money out. And when I thought USDC, the, you know, the USDC guy said, oh, we're just, you know, we're disrupting the banks. We're giving mortgage credit card interest. I ended up losing a nice six, seven digits, seven digits on Voyager. And I was on this USDC, most unrewarding job ever. I like, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. And that was, yeah, crypto. Well, again, we'll the, get- common, the common denominator in that is human beings. And whenever you have human beings involved in stuff, there's going to be fraud. Um, yep. There's going to be good things happening as well. And in the absence of extreme regulation, uh, it's going to be worse, not better. You need regulation for these things because it's just, you know, without regulation, people run amok. And even with re- with regulation, people run amok. But at least there's some semblance of law and order, you know? Yeah, yeah I thought it was like a risk-free. And my brother who's the older lawyer, smarter and more conservative. He's like, Jason, you're getting 9% return when rates are 0.5. This yeah. is too good to be true. So luckily I sold some of it, but that yeah. was, that's what I didn't, you know. So when you started, how'd you get your first few clients? Like, like how'd you do go about cold that? Calling. Cold, cold calling. calling. Yeah, on the phone, cold calling. You, yeah. You, you did list the, of, the of list of America's wealthiest, you know, investors and you just call them on the phone and you go through massive amounts of numbers to get people that are interested and then you, call them back and sell them on a stock. And that's how it starts. Yeah. Good so old fashioned like, brute force cold calling. Like you're very famous for like how to, you know, selling, selling the, like, how would you sell this pen to me? You're very famous for that. Right. Like, right. Everyone knows that line. Like is what, what's the trick in that? Or how do you do, you know? Well, I mean, the trick for, to that is really, you know, the, the idea is that, you know, it's about, about asking questions versus trying to sell someone, a pen or anything else. So, you know, you know, sell me this pen, you know, how do you sell someone a pen or a car or, or, or an insurance policy or a stock unless you know what their needs are, what their pain points are, what their goals are. So, you know, the first thing you want to do as a salesperson is not, is not try to sell something, but to ask questions to identify their needs, their, their values, their pain points. And then from there you can move in and try to resolve those things elegantly through a sales pitch, but without that, the, first part happening you're flying blind and you're like it's also disingenuous because you need to know what someone's needs are before you attempt to fill them yep yep absolutely okay now, going to this and strand oakmont took a lot of companies public including steve uh, including steve madden um right. did you just love the energy of taking companies public and being involved in that process yeah it was great it was it was amazing i mean i i think it's somewhat sad in the sense that um because there was so much about Stratton that was legitimate and was great and awesome, and the shit that I did wrong was corrupted it, and 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 ultimately forced me to be uh, thrown out of that industry, right, at a relatively young age. And whatever I, you know, cashed out, made a lot of money, uh, and then went to jail down the road, right, and then I give it all back. And 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 that's sad because there was so much great about Stratton, but I did love taking companies public and. I love venture capital. Even to this day, I still engage in venture capital. I think we're in a deal together, in fact, right? You mentioned Telly, um, a mutual friend. And um, so I look to, to find good companies. Um, but that's, that's a dangerous business, venture capital, for the for the uninitiated and, and for the unsophisticated. So you got to be very careful. You have to realize no matter how, how carefully you try to vet companies and pick them, you know, you're lucky if one out of 10 of them does amazing, hopefully two out of, maybe two out of three, two to three will break even, but you can have five or six disasters on your hands, no matter how hard you try. That's just the nature of the beast. And that, and, uh, and on that level, that's really what Stratton was. We were public venture capital firm. We were, we were do, raising money for these firms that really were, should have been private still. So in other words, the VC gets in very early. 
well, we were getting in just as early, but with public money. That's dangerous, you know, and it's very speculative. But when you do get winners like a Steve Madden, you know, you have a valuation. It started off as like at $10 million and now it's probably $3 billion. So, um, four more, $5 billion. So, you know, you can hit these huge home runs. And Steve Madden wasn't the only winner. We had a, we had many winners, if at least at least five or 10 really great winners. But we also had probably 90 losers, <laughs> massive losers, right? And then also, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, you know, we, um, you know, again, did other things that were in the beginning that were traded. The way we traded the deals was was a bit, you know, to say not a bit was corrupt. Those was illegal, but no different than what all the big firms were doing as well. Yeah, because you're basically saying train ahead, and the big firms would do similar things. They knew a deal was going down exactly the pipe. Exactly the same thing. Exactly yeah. the same thing. They called it laddering. You know, they 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 best clients get at the early stage, and they next people up 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 a level. Same thing. Yep, yep, and they had this fake Chinese wall, basically. That you know, yeah. like and it got it got tougher over time, but yeah, ladder. So it's different ways, yeah. And with the feds, went up whatever they could go after, they went after at one point. But you know, they, they, they had better lawyers, and and they they yeah. had longer cons. Like their 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 schemes were longer in duration and better papered uh, to create plausible deniability and and. Um, and, and and also, I got unlucky. What I got indicted for was, you know, the, the money I smuggled to Switzerland, ultimately. The, the, the other stuff was very difficult to prove. And Was that true, uh, by the way? Money on the body and all that? Yeah, absolutely. Why didn't you just go on private planes and they they still do the customs Red flag, there? yeah, it's a red flag. You know, private pro- yep. pro- pro- jet, and you still got to carry it through customs yourself. No, you you're, still, there, right? you're right. We just did the can't. You're right. Okay, we're going to crypto now. So at one point, you saw called crypto insanity, mass delusion. Now I feel like you've changed your mind a little bit on crypto, right? Like yes and no. I mean, I think I was right uh, with most of the ninety-nine percent of crypto. I was wrong about Bitcoin and 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 and, and Ethereum and maybe one other. I don't know. So I, I think that you know my, my you know one thing about about not just crypto about all things in life is my my views on these things continue to evolve over time based on new information, right? Mm-hmm. So at the time when I said crypto is a complete scam, I believe that I believed it was. And based on the information I had, uh, I think I was right. And I think that sometimes a scam becomes legitimate. <laughs> like it's, it, it happens often where the lie becomes the truth. I think Bitcoin is a perfect example of the lie becoming the truth, where in the early days, I wouldn't say it was a scam, but it was, it was controlled by a few. It was very not decentralized. It was being propped up and pumped up. And I was right. When I say crypto is a, Bitcoin is a scam, it was 19 or 20,000 and it crashed out to 2,000. Because at that time, that, that run-up was completely bolstered by fraud and inside dealing and wash trading. And, and it was a, you know very, very much of a concentrated, non-institutional run. And yep. I think that, that I was right about that. What I was wrong about was that I hadn't looked deeply enough at Bitcoin itself, into the code, into what it really did. And I think that you know it's a really elegant solution, Bitcoin. As a store of value, at least, and now, now I know there's, you know, greater and greater effort to try to make it more into a, a payment, you know, through Lightning Network or, or whatever. But you know, I, I think that um, yep. again, m- my views on crypto were like dead on balls accurate for all the shit coins and all these other this money that was I mean, just destroyed. There's a you know fleeced from investors and all these you know these crazy insane deals. Whether it's a Terra Luna or or FTX or all these things. So I think I was mostly right. But what I, I was say, wrong, yeah. I know, what I was wrong about was Bitcoin itself, though. And I think Michael Saylor really gets it right in this in this regard. Is that you know Bitcoin is really is a is a really elegant thing. It is. 
Yeah, I remember watching interviews of you and you saying these NFTs, all these guys selling these things, they're gonna they're gonna get their asses handed. To I them. never and, sold and like, yeah, yeah. I never, for example, like I was offered, as you can imagine, many times to do wolf NFTs, right? And 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 I could have made a quick twenty, thirty million dollars off that, but I never did. I, I I went I went very close to trying to like I would investigate it, I would get close to doing it, but then every time I got to the to the end zone, I'd be like, I just don't see how this is not going to be a fucking disaster in the end. Yeah. Like I, I it didn't see a legitimate use case of you know how how would it maintain its value and and I saw other people, some very well respected people who made like 50, $100 million, like they lost their clients all the money. I don't understand how they got away with it. Maybe they didn't. The wheels of justice grind slowly sometimes. But I know some people that like that sold massive tens of millions of dollars of NFTs and they just evaporated in value. They're worthless now. And, and, um, and, um, and they're, they're still acting as if the, everything, and, and they've been, ex- it's been accepted that they did this. I don't get that. So. Yeah, that, I don't know if they're, what's going to happen there. I mean, that yeah. That's, Who knows? Wheels of justice. It takes time, you know? Okay, okay. Yeah, and Kathy Wood is a big believer in Bitcoin. She, I had her on the show last week. She says, or two weeks ago, she thinks Bitcoin will hit a million a share, a million uh, things. So Who's to uh, say? I mean, listen, I own, I'm long a lot of Bitcoin, and uh, I'm, I, everything I'm long, I'm long for the very long term. I don't think you could really – I don't think it makes sense to try to trade Bitcoin as, as a non-professional investor. Uh, and I think that if you want to – buy some Bitcoin uh, as part of your overall portfolio, I think you sh- it's a good thing to do as a small percentage of an overall portfolio. Got it. Okay. Now, what a, tell me about this pet theme uh, crypto project that you're involved with. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not even involved in it. So that's a perfect example of oh, where I, so got involved, I got involved in it and I, I didn't make any money on it. I didn't take any fees from it. And I, I thought it was a cool idea because I have dogs I love, but they, is it was this nonsense. Is this, is this, is this Podico? Is that what they're talking about here? Yeah, Podico. Yeah, I knew, yeah, yeah. yeah, they gave me tokens. I never sold one. Um, and, um, you know, I, I put a little money in. I lost every dollar I put into it. And um, no, but it's, it, it, again, like everything else, all these ideas that seem like they made sense back in the day. So I say even my own views continue to evolve. Like I invested, I lost a lot of money in these, in these, in these coins myself. I did trying to invest and get involved in deals. Sometimes I bought them in the, in the open markets. Sometimes I was early stage, but I never sold anything because i'm always a very long-term player and stuff right and i never i never made a penny in crypto but i would think people would want to give you their nft or their project because then they would want you to promote it or they would think if they gave it to you yeah they did but i I never did that i didn't do that though i I never engaged in that so those projects you're not a big fan of that what about so you like bitcoin i like bitcoin do you prefer bitcoin or ethereum so I, I think I, I have to say Bitcoin, um, but mostly because I think Ethereum potentially, you know, has, you know, all these these use cases, right? You know, but that being said, I, I don't I still am, still don't know what those use cases are, um, you know, and I think that Bitcoin has really established itself right now, at least as a as, as a as we see from the, all of these rush to make you know, from the, the bigger institutions to create ETFs. And there's been a lot of institutional um, sponsorship coming in. And, and I think it's a great leading indicator for Bitcoin, far less so for Ethereum yet. Um, I, I would, de- I, I definitely think Ethereum is legitimate. I don't think Ethereum is a scam. I think it's very decentralized. Um, and, um, but again, I, I don't know. I have, a th- I'm long Ethereum as well. I have Ethereum as well. Those are the only two positions I maintain are Bitcoin and Ethereum. And, um, 
I have less Ethereum than I have Bitcoin, but I still am not quite sure of precisely what problem it's going to solve. And that's what you're, and that's what you're looking for. And then, yeah. And so, you know, us being Benzing, we're financial news media. Um, we have this digital asset day. I mean, it's crazy what BlackRock's doing with Bitcoin and getting involved. And, and once BlackRock starts coming in, you're going to see more institutions. And hopefully that since Bitcoin only has 20,000 coins, hopefully, you know, maybe the price goes up over time. But so far, it's just been stagnant for right now. But maybe that changes in the next. Yeah, I, 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 listen, my my belief is that Bitcoin is going to go higher over the long term. Okay. Um, but that and that's just my opinion. It's my belief. I have no, I'm not do, certain do of that. Sm- I, do smart you know? guys, you know, own Bitcoin Do smart. Like, you, you some know. do and some some don't. Some hate it. Some love it. Okay. Some hate it. Some, I have some friends that are very smart that absolutely hate it. For example, okay. Ilya Posen, right, from Telly, hates, absolutely despises it in every single way. Hates it, would never touch it with a 10-foot pole, anything crypto-related. What about Shervin? Shervin's probably somewhere, I'm not sure, less than, I'm probably more in the middle. I don't know. I, I really okay. can't, I can't answer that. Um, yeah. Um, but but um, it's a good question. I never asked him. I should ask him. But uh, I have other friends that are very, very smart that, that own Bitcoin. Um, but I think at this point, Almost everyone is unanimous, unanimously of the thought that uh, the, all this other nonsense with crypto is just complete nonsense and a scam, and it's all bullshit. Okay, so we took um, questions from the audience that, like, you know, who filed Benzinga. So they want to know, do you have any favorite penny stocks? No. Okay, <laughs> what are ways to tell if a penny stock is garbage or good? Well... I, I think that by and large, you know, almost all penny stocks are garbage, you know, okay. that's my opinion, uh, and knowing the penny stock world really uh, well. I think that for the most part, um, penny stocks are not designed to work. They, they, they're designed to enrich the people that issue them. <laughs> like, so I, I just think that the deck is, the, the deck, deck is so heavily stacked against investors Um independent stock world because you're, you're not dealing in a, in a, in a realm where it, the whole, the companies themselves are designed and the, and the market capitalizations are, oops, sorry. And, and, and the market capitalizations are in line with reality. That's not to say that every once in a while, a penny stock doesn't become real because I guess they do. Right. Uh, but I think what you need to do as, as an investor is you have to make a distinction between the stock and the company. So there's the stock, right, which is the stock where the price could be $0.10 cents or, or $10. You can do a reverse split and make a $0.10 cent stock $10 if you please, right? So I think this, and, and the, the question is, is what is the company doing? What's the management like? What's their track record? Um, and is the, is the business itself really have any shot of making money? Now, in the United States, most mostly the answer to that is no. You know, it's, it's uh, very, very rare that a penny stock becomes real. In other parts of the world, though, for example, like in Australia, uh, they do have a lot of stocks that are, are, are specifically priced in pennies in the mining sector, and many of them are real companies. Like they just that's they they price their their stocks in pennies. Uh, so you might find a twenty five cent stock that actually is a has a legitimately good shot with good management, right? Really? And then when it becomes when it becomes successful, it might be three dollars, but it has a mock cap of of five billion because there's so many shares outstanding. So you have to remember that you know. You know, a price of a stock 
is, is always in relation to its market cap. The more important question is, what's the market capitalization, right? Sometimes you might find a stock that is a penny stock that didn't start off as a penny stock. It's like the stock crashed for some reason. It became a penny stock. That might be more interesting where the company's still legitimate and they just have a, a problem. And then, and now you're, yep. you know, you find a, a great management team, you find an opportunity where a distressed situation that's a penny stock that used to be a real stock, but things that started off as penny stocks that were merged into shells and, and whatnot, it's very, very rare they end up working. Yeah, I mean, it, sometimes the stories are just so nice. Like, it's going to be the supplier to Tesla on batteries, but the reality is it's bullshit. Hey, well, I mean, it, 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 yes, well, that's, that's part of it. That's part of it, you know, and, and then and um, it's also it's not designed. They're not designed to work for the long term. Their market caps are out of whack for what the company's fundamentally worth. So it creates this problem where you can't really get institutional sponsorship in these stocks. It's all, you know, hot money with, you know, investors and there's people that are typically organizing PR campaigns to pump things up and then ultimately dump them. Now, if you want to play the game, like play the pump and dump game, meaning try to figure out that you get in on the right side of a pump and dump. You could do that for fun. I mean, if you, if you find that fun, that's okay. If you want to speculate with a few bucks, you know, let's say you pick, take 95% of your portfolio. I just wrote a book, which is coming out in, in, in the uh, end of October, right? Called the, the, wolf of in, the Wolf of Investing, right? Okay. And it's a, by Simon & Schuster is, is my publisher. And it'll be out in bookstores on Amazon, right? It's available for pre-sale right now. And so I think it's a great book. Um, and what I really talk about is, is, you know, it's okay to speculate with anything. If it's a very small percentage of your portfolio, like 5% of your money to have fun with, that's exciting. That's cool. You want, if you like doing that stuff. So all the power to you. So if you want to play the penny stock pump and dump game, meaning try to figure out what they're pumping up next and get in before they dump it. You can make money like that. Mostly you'll lose, but you, every once in a while, if you get really good at it, you can make money if you're in the right network of people, but that's not investing. That's speculation. Okay. And that's a very big difference between the two. The, the vast majority of your money should be in an S&P 500 index fund that pays, you know, that, that, that you, you reinvest the dividends that has a very low cost basis to it and um, virtually no fees like a Vanguard fund or something like that. That's where the bulk of your money should be. Got it. Okay. A couple of last questions. Do you think retail traders are smarter than they were before, like 20 years ago? Well, I, I think that. Retail traders, I wouldn't know if they're, say, they're smarter or, or stupider. They certainly have better tools and access to information they didn't used to have. So, for example, the, you know, back in, in, in the olden days, or even pre-internet, and especially the modern internet where everything really, all the news is out there, there used to be a significant gap in technology and in news in, in that, you know, people that, so-called in the know would have access to information and research a lot sooner than the average investor. That gap has been completely obliterated. Any investor that wants to educate themselves and, and, and receive news on a real-time basis can do so right now and get it on the internet, right? So that certainly has made people, I wouldn't know if they say it's smarter, but certainly better informed. And with that, comes the opportunity to, to to at least level the playing field somewhat. But still, again, you know, one of the messages in, in my book, The Wolf of Investing, is that all of these sort of short-term trading strategies, they've proven over time not to stack up to a long-term investment in a no in a low, you know, in a, in a really in a very low expense index fund like the S P five hundred that beats these things consistently, not every year, but over the long term.
So that's yeah, like it, really where you the bulk of your money should be going. Well, because you just said level playing field, and the next question was, do you think retail's edging closer to a level playing field where institutions aren't two steps ahead, or are institutions always going to be two steps ahead? I think they're always going to be ahead because, like, for example, now you have, you know, like this high frequency trading, right, where um, you have these yep. lightning fast computers, which are executing millions of orders uh, in microseconds, and they're able to legally, legally front run the market. And that creates a, 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 a playing field. that's not level. You also have, you know, companies like Goldman Sachs, which and also hedge funds that certainly have access to information um, at an earlier point than the average investor although it might just be uh days or, or hours now versus it used to be could be weeks before right but i still think that you have these big institutions that are going to have an edge on you but even they they don't beat the s&p 500 they don't so, even the hedge funds can't beat the s&p 500 and then if they do you know when you subtract their fees out it, they don't so it's like i think there's a way to to beat there's a way to offset all this and that is to be a long-term investor in index funds well, the thing that I find super crazy is that, like, in these pension funds and endowments, they're invested and actively managed, like, mutual funds. They're not buying indexes. I'm in the board of one it's of these insane. things. And, and I looked at our returns, and they're not buying indexes. And I said, why aren't we in indexes? They're like, well, we believe that this helps with volatility when it's down. I said, okay, so let's see the last 5 to 15 years. <laughs> our, our return or the, this nonprofit's return is 4% on average the last 15 yeah. years. That's ten percent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The ten ten point five, and, if, yeah, and, and yeah. especially over hundred, about over a hundred years. So I think that what happens there. So why is that? Really, why I, is that? I explain that in my book in, okay. in, 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 in excruciating detail. Oh, you um, do? Okay, this is great because no one talks about that. Like, I do not not in written form. Not in, like there's a like, reason. That's great. There's a reason. I do it in a very funny, ironic way. Okay. Um, it's it's partially. Um, because there's, you know, this, like, you know, the military industrial complex keeps the United States constantly at war, right? Well, you have something called the Wall Street fee machine complex, which keeps people constantly trading and churning and buying and selling. And, and there's this whole, you know, sort of infrastructure set up around that, which basically tries to convince people and, and this the money management industry and, and, and it's, it's this sort of, this, this sort of 900-pound gorilla that sits on top of the market and basically, you know, has people at institutions bought into this cycle of managing yeah. money on an active basis, despite the fact that virtually every – not virtually every academic study out there going back to the 1905 will show you that – Active investing does not beat passive investing. It's impossible, virtually impossible to beat the market. Now, that being said, every once in a while, you have a rare animal like a Warren Buffett who does beat the market, right? And they're amazing, those people. There's very few people that are just incredible, like a Tepper, that are just amazing. But guess what? You can't invest in their funds, so to speak. You could buy Berkshire Hathaway, but you know, you can, most of these, super, these amazingly sophisticated yep. Hedge fund guys, the ones that are really worth their weight, that are worth their two and twenty, they're not open to you anymore. They're only with a few select people, and the ones that are open are the ones that don't deserve to charge a two and twenty, whatever they're charging. I mean, two percent match would be twenty percent of profits, right? So, so you have this this whole whole structure out there from mutual funds to hedge funds to money managers whatever they are right and it's all sort of this vest that you could draw a straight line back to the 1920s and see exactly how it all came to be why it's still there 
how it's gotten better for sure because of people like Jack Bogle from Vanguard who who really called the mutual fund industry out and caused their fees to collapse. But still, they're out there and they don't stack up to investments in a low cost index fund. And um, but they're still there, and it's, you have to scratch your head why it's still happening. It's gotten better for sure. There's a lot more indexing going on right now than there was 15, 20 years ago. Um, but there's still way too much managed money, I believe. Oh my god, it's it's crazy. And this one, fun, I mean, I'm like shocked by it. Okay, with two two last questions. You and Grant Cardone ever make up, or are you guys just? I have no, yeah, I don't beef with Grant Cardone at all. I think Grant had a bad moment on my podcast, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I wish him nothing but the best. And I, when I saw him last time, we hugged, and not, not even a word was said. Um, and um, he's, you know, I, I, again, I, I, I'm one. I don't hold grudges, and I never, I wasn't even trying to hurt him on my podcast. I was just trying to have a great conversation. I think he came in a bit argumentative, and 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 whatever, and 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 that was that, and. But I certainly have moved on from that moment. But it's a funny, it's certainly a funny podcast when hey, you look back it, at it. Yeah, you, you scratch your head like, what was he thinking? But, you know, hey, but I'm sure he's, he's he's evolved since then. It creates views, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, no bad media. Okay, and then last thing is you have this book you come, coming out. You said Simon and Suster. Um, what are, like, two takeaways or why should people buy that book and learn from it? You already mentioned the mutual fund thing, which – well, yeah, well, yeah, and I'm not is, saying I'm not saying mutual funds are bad in general. I'm just saying well, they are, you, but I'll say okay. they're bad. Okay, okay, I'll okay. say they're bad in general. I, I'll may, say they're we worthless. May have, we, we may have some clients that are mutual funds. So I got to be. It's you know. fine. My, my opinion is they're by and large worthless, okay. and there's a much better way for for the average investor to 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 deploy their capital. And I go through that in the book in a very funny irreverent in a way with a deep history of wall street but i use a lot of stories and 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 uh and really laugh out loud situations to explain everything about how the market works um uh, why it is the way it is how people are actively trying to fuck you every day of the week and a very simple solution of how you could beat wall street their own game and outperform 95 plus percent of all the top hedge fund managers in the world with a very simple strategy um and okay. I go through that, and it's, I think the book is amazing. Uh, it's actually avail- available for pre-sale right now on, on Amazon and other places. Again, it's a wolf of yeah. investing, and I think everyone, I think it's going to be a must-read. I hope it's a must-read because I think the book has massive value to every person. Do you think you'll do an audiobook version of it? There is an audiobook. It's just not, yeah, it'll be out simultaneously with the, with the release, oh. an audiobook. All right. Did you read it, or what was it you? I did, yeah, I did it, yeah. How'd you, how'd you like doing that? I guess my, I've done three already, so it's like not like my first rodeo, you know, so okay. it's fun. Okay. Easy and for then- me. And then what, where are you right now? Your background's amazing. I first thought it was my house. But what, where, where do you got? Where do you, are you? Oh, in Miami Florida? beach. I live on the water in Miami. Yeah. Uh, oh, so you must love it there. I do love it. It's a little hot still. Yeah. But I was, I was away most of the summer. I just got home and, but it's about to start cooling down now. So we get into the glory days of Miami, like, like mid October through probably, you know, eight, mid April or even at the end of April. Last year was pretty cool here till, till the early May. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jordan, for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks for enlightening us on crypto. He's a believer long-term Bitcoin. He owns Ethereum. Um, talked about the movie. We talked about a lot of things, and I hopefully brought different angles. And the penny stock stuff, it's very hard to find a penny stock that turns into real real money is basically what you're saying today. Yeah. yeah. Well, but even if it does, they'll probably convince you to sell before it does. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate it. You got it.